Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Corn. This week's episode is taken from an event we did on Letters That Changed the World, based on the book by the award-winning historian Simon Seabag Montefiore, written in history, Letters That Changed the World. We had an amazing cast of actors, Jade Anuka, Tamsin Gregg, who has widely been acclaimed for her stage performances in theatre, Kwame Kwai-Ama, the artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre in London, Jack Loudon, star of Dunkirk and Mary Queen of Scots, and it was chaired by the BBC's Razia Iqbal. I was really sad I missed this event. I was ill on the night, but I'm really looking forward to listening to this week's episode. And Farah, what were the letters that we ended up hearing on the night? We had a vast selection of letters taken from all times and places in history, from Michelangelo to Catherine the Great, from Rosa Parks to Alan Turing and Leonard Cohen. Some will make you cry, some will make you laugh, but they're all inspiring and we really hope you enjoy it. Just before we go to this week's episode, for those of you who live in London, we wanted to tell you about a really exciting event we have coming up on the 7th of April in Euston. It's the Podcast Live Festival that Intelligence Squared is a part of, as well as a number of other podcasts. It's going to be a really great day. There are several other great political podcasts that are part of this festival, including the Romaniacs podcast, Times Red Box and James Dellingpole's podcast as well. So there's a real wealth of podcasts that you can dive into and watch live. Our podcast in particular will be at 1pm and it will be the eminent artist Tracy Emin in conversation with the BBC's Razia Iqbal. For more information and to buy tickets, go to podcastlive.com. Tickets are only £12 or 2 for 20 And finally, before we get to the episode, if you enjoy listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast, we'd like to recommend the New Statesman podcast featuring Stephen Bush and Helen Lewis. You'll all recognize Helen Lewis. She's hosted quite a few of our podcasts before, and they run a fantastic podcast about British politics. Go give them a listen. We're all big fans here at Intelligence Squared. And now, here's this week's episode. Thank you all for coming. What a fantastic crowd. I'm so glad to see so many people here. I hope uh, for what will be a wonderful evening, which will leave you both enriched and enthused. We're here to uh, we're here to hear some letters being read out. Letters that change the world. Letters in this book, written in history, uh, put together by uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore. Um, it's a perfect companion, a book which you can just dip into at random and get a sense of something, as as Seabag says in the introduction, something that is both authentic and at the same time something that is 
captures just a moment. There's something so wonderful about reading something that has just been caught in, in, in that moment, the immediacy of it, whether it's something that was from thousands of years ago or even just a few years ago. Who of us here doesn't like receiving letters? I feel particularly sad that it appears to be largely uh, a habit that we've lost, but perhaps Seabag will correct me and say that it's coming back back into fashion. One of the things that he says, he, he quotes Goethe in the introduction, and I love what he said about letters, that they are the most significant memorial a person can leave, that they represent the immediate breath of life which is really rather beautiful. Seabag, as a historian, just outline for us the importance of letters. That, that give us a sense of what they've meant to you when you've discovered them in the writing of, of these books. Well, and many of, these, um, many of the letters in this book are well known, but many of them are letters that I actually discovered in, in the archives myself. And, and all my history books are really based on original correspondence. And there is something incredibly exciting um, in, in finding a letter that no one's seen before. I remember with some of Stalin's letters, you can actually smell his pipe smoke on them still. Um, and so letters are, are something with an immediacy and, a, and a, an excitement that really, that really is, is as, as, as Goethe said, you know, the spark of life. And he also said you know, to destroy a letter is to destroy a piece of life itself. And yet many letters are destroyed. So some of these letters in the book I've actually seen the originals of and some of the ones we're reading tonight. Mm. And that's why, that's why letters are so exciting. They catch a moment. They may not be true before, they may not be true afterwards, but the moment that someone puts pen to paper, that is truth. That is the present in its most essential form. And that's, that's the wonderful thing about these letters. Kate, in writing historical fiction, to, to what extent is there the same exhilaration when, when you, you know that you may in fact be fictionalising something <laughs> that you've discovered? Well, y- yes. I mean, I write imaginary friends against the backdrop of real history, but what Seabag says is absolutely right, because most of my novels are led by unheard women, and the ones that don't appear in the history books, actually it's through letters and sometimes wills that you can build up the texture of what a woman's life would be. So what would it mean to live in France in the 16th century if you're not a princess or a queen? You don't appear anywhere. So when you're trying to find those lost voices, particularly women's voices, it is in the letters when they say, I leave this Bible to my beloved daughter, I leave this to my beloved son, I leave a pair of shoes. And that actually often is letters, is what is the foundation of historical fiction too. So I grub around in the archives as well. Um, you know, and all you ever want is to find that one thing that will suddenly make your book take flight, that one woman's voice that would never have been out there otherwise. And it is always in the letters that you find them. So I, wa- I want to know from both of you whether you have received a letter that you treasure and that you might want to share with oh, us we might a little bit of a story. <laughs> well, there's, some, there's some we don't want to share. Um, but, there, but, but I certainly get some pretty bizarre letters from readers. And because I wrote a book about the Romanovs recently, I receive a letter just about every week from someone who claims to be one yeah. of the Romanovs. Um, the other day I received a letter, a bizarre letter from a reader that just said, Uh, It was just one line long, and it just said, uh, I know you know your history, but do you remember your history? And I looked at the name at the bottom, and I gradually realized it was the first girl I kissed 40 years ago. So, yeah, that was, yeah. That's fantastic. 
I'm just, just before we move on, I'm just going to share a little uh, letter anecdote. I, I once wrote a letter to my tutor at university to say that I couldn't finish the essay because I was dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I, I think the thing with the letters that you get sent as an author is that sometimes it is just so clear that the person has missed the point. So I was really pleased with a beautiful description in, in The Burning Chambers, my new book, um, of an owl taking flight and all of, the, you know, all of this malarkey before the battle started. And um, I got this letter from someone saying, Madam, and that's always a bad sign when it starts, Madam, it says, Madam, your description, you know, I love your books, I think it's really great, all the rest of it, but I would like to point out that owls do not make any noise when they fly, and he'd enclosed a membership form for the Owl Appreciation Society. <laughs> and I felt that was a result. <laughs> I'm assuming you've kept all these letters, course, there's something wonderful about that. Uh, Steve, can I um, ask you to introduce the first letter uh, that, uh, that we're going to discuss and then hear read uh, Captain A.D. Chater to his mother, Christmas, World War I. Well, this is from Christmas 1914. It's an extraordinary moment in history. It's an extraordinary human moment. And World War I as was, was supposed to be over by Christmas. And yet here they were um, at Christmas and the war was still going on. But on Christmas Day, something quite extraordinary happened. And it's described in the letter... And this is a letter from a young um, captain in the British Army, uh, Duggan Chater. And, um, and I think you'll agree it's one of the most bizarre and special moments in World War I before the war really turned into the great slaughterhouse that we recognize. And, um, and just to say, um, Captain Chater survived and lived until the 1970s. Mm. So this letter is going to be read by Jack. Thanks, Jack. Dearest Mother, I am writing this in the trenches in my dugout. With a wood fire going and plenty of straw, it is rather cosy, although it is freezing hard and real Christmas weather. I think I have seen one of the most extraordinary sights today that anyone has ever seen. About 10 o'clock this morning, I was peeping over the parapet when I saw a German waving his arms. And presently, two of them got out of their trenches and came towards ours. We were just going to fire on them when we saw they had no rifles. So one of our men went out to meet with them, and in about two minutes, the ground between the two lines of trenches was swarming with men and officers of both sides, shaking hands and wishing each other a happy Christmas. This continued for about half an hour when most of our men were ordered back to the trenches. For the rest of the day, nobody has fired a shot, and men have been wandering about at will on the top of the parapet and carrying straw and firewood about in the open. I went out myself and shook hands with several of their officers and men. From what I gathered, most of them would be as glad to get home again as we should. We have had our pipes playing all day and everyone has been wandering about in the open unmolested, but not, of course, as far as the enemy lines. The truce will probably go on until someone is foolish enough to let off his rifle. We nearly messed it up this afternoon by one of our fellows letting off his rifle skywards by mistake, but they did not seem to notice, so it did not matter. I am writing this back in billets. The same business continues as yesterday, and we had another parley with the Germans in the middle, 
We exchanged cigarettes and autographs, and some more people took photos. We are, at any rate, having another truce on New Year's Day, as the Germans want to see how the photos came out. (laughs) It is really very extraordinary that this sort of thing should happen in a war in which there is so much bitterness and ill feeling. The Germans in the front of the line are certainly sportsmen, if they are nothing else. Of course, I don't suppose it has happened everywhere along the line, although I do think that indiscriminate fighting has more or less stopped in most places on Christmas Day. Your loving son, Duggan. That, it's so poignant. I, I just want to see, Bag, how, how many letters there were about that incident and, and what made you choose that particular one. I mean, maybe there weren't that many. Um, there weren't that many. There were a few. Uh, there was another incident further down the line where they actually played football between each other. They kicked at the Germans, kicked a football, and they had a football game in the middle of the trenches. But the letter's less good. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted the most descriptive letter of, of all of them. And this is, this is the best of the letters. And it's quite nice because there are other letters in the, in, the, in the book where you say afterwards, unfortunately, he was killed three days later. But the fact that he survived um, to live a long life and have children and grandchildren, it, it makes this a rather nice one to start with. And, and the humour is lovely. The humour is wonderful. And it's also the, the real poignancy of it that these boys don't want to be doing that. And the boys on the other side don't want to be doing that, really. And they, therefore, are kind of sorting it out. And you know that back in London and back in Berlin, they are keeping it going. And that sort of letter really brings that home, I think. I mean, it's a beautiful letter. And it is lovely that he survived, you're right, because very few did, really. That's right, that's right. The next letter we're going to hear uh, was written to Jessica Mitford by Rosa Parks. Kate, will you introduce that letter for us? Yes. I mean, one of the reasons I I love the book and I love this letter is that sometimes those most significant moments of history turning are not clear at the time. We, with hindsight, know how much this mattered, but she didn't at the time. And so Rosa Parks, you know, wrote this in 1956, and she was already a very well-known activist. Um, And when she took on the race laws in Alabama, you know, the notorious Jim Crow laws, and sat on the back of that bus in December 1955. And she was arrested in 1955. And her case was used, of course, and we know the rest was history. But she's writing this letter to her friend, who is known as Mrs. Troyhaft. Um, That was Jessica Mitford at the time, was married to a civil rights lawyer. And it's in the middle of that case. And she doesn't know. And so, therefore, this letter, which isn't a beautiful piece of literature, one might say, but we know that this is when history happened. But she doesn't. And I think that's what's so wonderful about this letter. It's just an ordinary letter. Jade. Dear Mrs. Choyhoft, I am very happy to hear from you again. Thanks very much for the contribution and the names of other contributors. We are having a difficult time here, but we are not discouraged. The increased pressure seems to strengthen us for the next blow. My first case was heard in the circuit court February 22nd. I was found guilty and sentenced to 70 days in jail. The appeal was made to the state Supreme Court. I was immediately arrested again with the leaders of the bus protest. We have received very generous contributions from over the country. 
although no specific appeal has been made through the mail. The widespread publicity we are getting is most disturbing to the local governing group. They resent outside interference. Therefore, I will have to take the matter of direct appeal to the Montgomery Improvement Association. The Claudette Colvin case is one of four filed with the federal court at present. I will write again soon. Sincerely yours, Rosa L. Parks. I, I love the formality of the Rosa L. Parks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And the case, you know, she was won in November 1956. So this is right in the middle. But I think one of the things that I do like about it so much is it's a reminder to all of us that the little things also matter. The fact that people from outside the state are writing letters and the governor doesn't like it. And it's so easy to think that big history is only about the people in charge. But actually, that, for me, that is everybody can do something. And I just think that's, you know... I think it's a great letter. In a way, it's interesting, isn't it, Seabag? Because there is a, a in, in the entire book, you get a real sense of the different uses of letters. You know, this is this is a private exchange, of course, alluding to a really big historical moment. Mm. But there are public letters. There are you know yeah. huge letters of significance that we know did change history. Well, that's right. I mean. Obviously, my, my definition, as you'll see, of letters that change the world is very broad. Um, uh, but, and I'll explain, I can explain why every letter's in there, by the way, if you challenge me. But, um, but yes, I mean, obviously, there are public letters. There's Chairman Mao launching the Cultural Revolution. There are private diplomatic letters, the blank check letter that we've all heard of in World War I, that launched World War I. Most people have never actually read it, and it's in the book. Um, there are also many private letters that were never meant to be published and yet are fascinating to read. Um, and there are letters by kings and emperors, but also by ordinary people. We've already heard some of those t tonight. So that was what I was trying to get, was a complete variety of voices and levels. And, and you're right, you know, great historical moments and private moments that had great significance. And also the idea of Rosa Parks and a Mitford girl being in touch. That really quite blew my mind. It was like, yeah. that's so interesting that they were, you know... They got people. everywhere. They got... <laughs> <laughs> they were everywhere, yeah. See, Bag, let's focus on a, a real specialist subject for you. Uh, where, so we're going to turn to uh, Lenin writing to the Bolsheviks of Penza. Well, you know, this, this is the real... Prepare to hear the real voice of Lenin. Because, you know, for, for decades and decades... Um, you know, we were taught at school that Stalin was the monster, but Lenin was essentially a decent, um, sort of almost sort of uh, patriarchal um, a figure in the Russian Revolution, well-intentioned, and then Stalin um, turned, it, turned it cruel and nasty and killed uh, millions of people. And I was actually taught that at school, pretty much, and probably many of you were. And, you know, nowadays, more than ever at this moment in our, in our history, it's key that we know this stuff. And so this letter was only revealed after 1991. These letters were all locked up and shown to no one. They were state secrets in the Soviet Union. Only when the Soviet Union fell were these read. And now you can see the real Lenin, the Lenin who said, uh, a revolution without firing squads is meaningless. And um, here you see that uh, in action. And Jack, will you read the letter? And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Listen out for the last line. That tells you all you need to know. Comrades, 
the insurrection of five Kulak districts should be pitilessly suppressed. The interests of the whole revolution require this because the last decisive battle with the Kulaks is now underway everywhere. An example must be demonstrated. Number one, hang and make sure that the hanging takes place in full view of people, no fewer than 100 known kulaks, rich men, bloodsuckers. Number two, publish their names. Three, seize all their grain from them. And four, designate hostages in accordance with yesterday's telegram. Do it in such a fashion that for hundreds of kilometers around, the people might see, tremble, know, shout. They are strangling and will strangle to death the blood-sucking kulaks. Telegraph receipt and implementation. Yours, Lenin. Find some truly hard people. It's a, it's a real measure of uh, precision in ruthlessness there. It's yeah. astonishing. Yeah, I mean, he always used to, he always, and Stalin also did that. They used to number everything and um, number their, their orders. And... You know, when, when he was, um, when he, people always, as I said, people always said that Stalin was a terrible distortion of Lenin. <clears throat> but when he was first introduced to Stalin and someone said, Stalin's, you know, Stalin's killed people, Stalin's um, done all these terrible things, he said, he said let's, let's use him. That's exactly the type I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the real Lenin. Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, they were all very much the same. They believed in terror and they believed in mass killing as a way to change society. And these letters, which this is just one, um, all demonstrate just how absolutely terrifyingly, fanatically ruthless they were. But, but also there's a contrast in the book with a letter of, of um, Stalin's daughter. That's right. I mean, they also led normal lives at the same time. Um, you know, one of the letters, which I found actually, is a letter from Stalin's daughter, aged nine, Svetlana, uh, in which what, if you were Stalin's daughter, aged nine, what would you do to, to play she pretends to be the dictator of Russia. And so, and she signs her orders, um, Svetlana Stalin, first secretary of the Communist Party, the boss. And she, and she writes it um, to Stalin, comrade Stalin, Molotov, Beria. And one of them, which I've got, I think I've got in the book, says, I hereby order that all homework in the Soviet Union should be abolished for a year. <laughs> And, and Stalin and all the Politburo signed the letter and stuck it on their fridge in their apartment in the Kremlin. So. I think the other thing that's so interesting about that letter and what you say, Seabag, about what you discovered and what we were all taught about Lenin and Stalin, you know, the goody and the baddie, essentially, is that, you know, it's a shabby old cliche, the idea that history is always written by the victors. But there is a, something more um, insidious about it, which is history is also written with an agenda the story that people want to tell. And I think this letter is a really good example of that, that the decision is made that Lenin is the paternalistic one. He's the good one, really, and he did things reluctantly. And his own words condemn him. And that is actually the architecture of war and terror is the same. 
whether it's in the 12th century, the 4th century, the 21st century, it's the same architecture. Shame people, name them, treat people as an example. And, it, and that's why that letter, I think, is so, so chilling, really. Kate, Kate let's uh, talk about uh, the letter that uh, Babur wrote to his son, Humayun, uh, which has uh, some real lessons for us today, too. Well, it, it's a beautiful letter, and, and it was written in 1529. And it's a letter of tolerance, and it's very much a you know, father to a son. And Babur himself, who was uh, born in 1483, he was a prince descended from a great line, but his, his family had fallen from its glory, if you like. And almost single-handedly, he restored the glory, and he restored the, you know, took over the conquest of India, and he founded his own dynasty, the Mughals. And here, he's writing when he's about 45, and it's only just shortly before his death. But he is giving this beautiful advice to the boy that will come after him, his son will come after him. And as you say, we should be listening to this now. And Kwame is going to read it for us. Oh, my son, the realm of Hindustan is full of diverse creeds. Praise be to God, the righteous, the glorious, the highest, that he hath granted unto thee the empire of it. It is but proper that you, with heart cleansed of all religious bigotry, should dispense justice according to the tenets of each community, and in particular refrain from the sacrifice of cow, for that way lies the conquest of the hearts of the people of Hindustan. And the subjects of the realm will, through royal favor, be devoted to thee. And the temples and abodes of worship of every community under imperial sway should not be damaged. Dispense justice so that the sovereign may be happy with the subjects and likewise the subjects with their sovereign. The progress of Islam is better by the sword of kindness, not by the sword of oppression. Ignore the disputations of Shias and, and, and Sunnis, for therein is the weakness of Islam. And bring together the subjects with different beliefs in the matter of the four elements so that the body politic may be immune from the various ailments. And on us is but the duty to advise. Just hearing that again, having read it in the book, Seabag, I mean, it, it couldn't be more prescient given that we've got two nuclear powers in South Asia eyeing themselves yeah. up, you know, edging towards the brink um, and, and pulling, pulling themselves back. I mean, it couldn't be a, a greater lesson for, for tolerance and, and, and being calm in of the course. face of, of difficulty. Well, Babo was one of the most extraordinary characters and lovable characters in history. I mean, his, he wrote a memoir, which is really the kind of first kind of modern memoir. It was written in, in the 1520s. And he writes about his love affairs with boys, his love affairs with girls a few battles, chopping off a few heads, um, many parties, a lot of drinking. Um, he writes, he write, he's a poet, and, um, and he found, he's, he's, a, he's a great, great nephew of Tamale, the great conqueror. Um, he fails to win Samarkand, and instead he's left to, to take Kabul and Afghanistan, which he doesn't want. And then, just by luck, he sees a chance, and he invades India, and he founds the Mughal dynasty. And he, he gets to the absolute heart of ruling India, which is to tolerate every, every you know, the, the Shias, the Sunnis, and the, and the Hindus, which, of course, is the great lesson. 
which you know, the present government of India could learn. The British, the British also could have learned lessons from all these things. So all the rulers of that part of the world could still learn from this. It's a wonderful letter of tolerance. Kwame, I wonder how you reflect on, on it, having just read it. Um, again, I, I think one thinks about how prescient it is to today. You know, we just have to look at the news, right? And see, and see as we've said, that, that, that these two countries are, are at the brink of war. And, and it's also, there's something beautiful about, about reading letters of many centuries ago and knowing that, that we still think the same that we still believe in the same things, that quintessentially our hearts seek peace and love and tolerance. And it was very beautiful to read that and, 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 and muse on that. I, I suppose also the, the, the wisdom of a father passing something on to his son in the hope that he'll absorb it and, and continue in that vein. But it's all, it's, yes, and it's also the beauty of the way that he addresses his son, oh, my son. And immediately you're kind of melting around that, aren't you? And there are book, you know, other letters in the book that are being written, you know, obviously in Tudor England at exactly the same date with a very different sort of tenor. So you believe, for me, reading that, that that father loved that son. This is not just um, an official letter. It isn't just, I don't want my dynasty to go down the tubes, you know, because I'm about to die. You just believe that there's love there as well and that there's a purpose to what he was doing. So, and, and I didn't know very, anything about him really at all. So I'm you know, grateful to this book because I thought, oh, he sounds, he's more interesting than Tudors. We've had enough of the Tudors. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's go much, there. Let's go east. Let's <laughs> leave the Tudors behind, I thought. Yes. <laughs> Sivag, uh, let's uh, we'll stay with the family theme, but again uh, against a, a, a much bigger backdrop. Uh, Vilma Grunwald uh, to her husband Kurt. Well, I think this is the most heartbreaking letter in the book, and I, I can never really hear it. Every time I hear it, it's, it's, it breaks my heart again. Um, this is one of the very few letters that were actually smuggled out of the death camps, not the labour camps of, run by the Nazis in World War II during the Holocaust but the actual death camps. And this letter is also extraordinary because it contains a Sophie's Choice decision, which is, which is unthinkable and unspeakable to all of us. Um, the Grunwald family, a doctor, his wife, and his two children, one of whom was mildly handicapped, arrived at Auschwitz in, in, in 1944. And when they went to the selection process on the railway, on the railway station at Auschwitz, they faced the, the appalling um, judgment of Joseph Mengele, the angel of death, the doctor who made the selections. And as he went down, the, as he selected them, it was left, those to the left will die and be gassed immediately. Those to the right will survive. And when he came to this family, he said to the father, to the right, he's a doctor and he's a healthy man, he'll survive. He said to the mother, to the right, you'll survive. He said to the other son, the healthy son, to the right, but he said to the handicapped son, to the left. And the mother, in that split second, made an unbearable decision, but a marvellous decision. She said, I'll go with him, even though she'd been chosen to live. And so she went to the left. And when they were waiting, they realised, by talking to other people and some of the kind of guards, that they were going to be murdered immediately, and they didn't know how. And so she got a bit of paper, and she wrote this letter. And... Um, and, you know, she gave it to a guard. And the chances of this being given to anybody to reaching her husband were very low. But amazingly, 
the letter was given to her husband, Kurt, in the, in the labor camp. He survived the war, and he later gave this to one of the Holocaust, the Holocaust Museum in, 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 in the States, I think. And um, you'll judge for yourself what she said. Tamsin's going to read it to you. You, my only one, dearest. In isolation, we are waiting for darkness. We considered the possibility of hiding, but decided not to do it since we felt it would be hopeless. The famous trucks are already here, and we are waiting for it to begin. I am completely calm. You, my only and dearest one, do not blame yourself for what happened. It was our destiny. We did what we could. Stay healthy and remember my words that time will heal if not completely, then at least partially. Take care of the little golden boy. And don't spoil him too much with your love. Both of you, stay healthy, my dear ones. I will be thinking of you and Misha. Have a fabulous life. We must board the trucks. Into eternity. Vilma. Slightly speechless mm. by your reading, um, no, Tamsin. Beautifully read. Mm. Beautifully read. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'd like you just to reflect on, on you having to what, prepare to for it now. and just read it. Yeah, I'd like you to just You'd talk like now. me to talk now. Yeah, <laughs> if that would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> only I only because I can't, Tamsin. <laughs> <laughs> well... A director that I worked with um, many years ago gave me a very uh, sound piece of advice. And he said that he felt that an actor should decide whether the character they are, they are playing is seeking to express emotion or deal with emotion. And he said that most actors do a lot of expressing. And the interesting ones are dealing with it. <laughs> and so what strikes me in this letter is that it's a woman who is so beautifully and compassionately dealing with her own devastation and giving so much life <laughs> you know beyond that and we are we, I think we have fallen into the 
rather dangerous position of expressing ourselves <laughs> rather than um, loving others by asking them to have a fabulous life or choosing to have a fabulous life. The generosity of that last yeah. line is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Seabag, uh, you, you split up this book into uh, it thematically rather than uh, chronologically, and, and this next letter appears in the in the creativity section. This is a, a letter that Michelangelo wrote to uh, Giovanni de Pistoia, uh, and Kate, I think you're going to introduce this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, Seabag knows them all. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, he does. No, well, well, I think we, we put this one here, obviously, after that beautiful last letter, but it's quite a... Um, a good reminder of how some of the things that give us such pleasure are so beautiful. In this case, the Sistine Chapel. And everybody knows the story of Michelangelo being asked to do that and building all the structures around it. And it was Genesis and the story of humankind and God's gift to the world and how beautiful that is. And you, whether you see it in a picture or we've stood underneath it, it is one of those things that makes your heart sing. And then you read this letter... And you remember the real artist and what he suffered to make this piece of beauty that has long outlasted him and will hopefully outlast us all. And the thing about Michelangelo, apart from obviously being a great painter and a sculptor, he was a beautiful wordsmith. Um, and he often sent his poems as letters, which, of course, we all want that friend who sends these beautiful letters to us in, in poetry form. Um, and this, of course, you know, this was, letter was written in 1509, um, but the chapel ceiling was not finished until 1512, and it, it, he was writing this in the middle of it. So it just makes you think of what people do to give us all pleasure. And Kwame, you're going to read the letter for us. I've already grown a goiter from this torture, swollen up here like a cat from Lombardy or anywhere else where the stagnant water's poison. My stomach squashed under my chin, my beard's pointing at heaven, my brain's crushed in a casket, my breast twists like a harpy, my brush above me all the time dribbles the paint so my face makes a fine floor for droppings. My haunches are grinding into my guts. My poor ass strains to work as a counterweight. Every gesture I make is blind and aimless. My skin hangs loose below me. My spine's all knotted from folding over itself. I'm bent taut like a Syrian bow. And because I'm like this, my thoughts are crazy, perfidious tripe. Anyone shoots badly through a crooked blowpipe. My painting is dead. Defend it for me, Giovanni. Protect my honor. I'm not in the right place. I am not a painter. I love the resistance to, to, to creativity in that, and, it, and it's just so witty. I mean, he was just, I mean, as Kate said, I mean, he was one of these people who could do everything. You know, he could, he could go down to the mines and cut out a block of marble and, and, and work out and know how to transport it and know how to choose it. Um, he, he, could, he Obviously, he was a sculptor. He didn't think of himself as a painter at all. 
Yeah, but, it, but of course, I mean, you know, look, look at the Sistine Chapel. Um, he, was, he was also, um, a, as, again, as Kate said, a great poet. You know, he was more, he, his poetry is amazing. His love poetry, um, you know, often to young, young boys, but also to female friends, is so beautiful and so amazing. And he published it. I mean, he, I mean he, 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 he was proud of his poetry. Um, and this was an early achievement, an incredibly long life. And he went on to run the building of, of St. Peter's. And, um, and, and then, of course, there's his, you know, he had these kind of... Um, he was an impossible person to work with. And he had this kind of completely vicious relationship with the Pope, Pope Julius II, who commissioned this. So, anyway, all of it, you can get the sort of grit in his personality in that letter which you read so beautifully. Uh, let's move on to another parent-child letter. This is uh, Maria Teresa to Marie Antoinette. No. Oh, we've missed out one. Oh, we've got my favourite letter. It's a short we one. Have to it's miss. a very, it's a very, very short one. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So, the next one. Apologies. Sarah Bernhardt to Mrs. Patrick Campbell-Kate. Tell us about this one. Well, I mean, I think probably everybody knows Sarah Bernhardt. You know, this... this incredible great woman who was an actress, a thinker, a free spirit, um, a dancer. She was the uh, daughter of a Parisian Jewish, uh, what, what was he called? Well, she was a courtesan, really. I think we're using the word courtesan. Um, and, and, uh, uh, well, I think that's fair enough. And an unknown client. We're using that word as well. Um, so she didn't really know her parents. But she was completely self-made. And she was just one of those women that was going to just do stuff regardless. And of course, she became legendary and all over France in particular, wherever you go, every single hotel that is older than 100 years says Sarah Bernhardt slept here. <laughs> you think she must have spent her entire life asleep, frankly. Um, but this letter, you know, Mrs. Patrick Campbell was also a very famous actress known as Mrs. Pat. Um, and she lived life to the full, but also things sometimes went wrong. And you will understand why I'm giving you the detail of this before Tamsin reads from the letter. And this letter was sent in 1915. And one of the things that she was known for was that whatever happened, she just got up, the show must go on. So she fell during a performance of, of La Tosca in Rio de Janeiro. She fell 15 feet from a balcony quite early in her career, and she broke her knee, and it never really mended properly, and she was in agony for most of the rest of her life. And here, a long time after the accident, um, she's 70 years old now, she's writing to her friend, Mrs. Pat, in 1915, just to say that she has decided to sort her knee out. Tamsin. Doctor will cut off my leg next Monday. <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> Kisses, all my heart, Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think that requires any commentary whatsoever. No, no, no. <laughs> Maria Theresa to Marie Antoinette, a mother writes to her daughter, Kate. Yes, well, this is, I mean, if ever you want to say to a teenage girl, listen to your mother, this letter is it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really is. Uh, so, 
Mary Teresa, she's in her late 50s at this moment, it's 1775, and she is one of those real grand, doughty empresses um, of France, and she has worked all of her life to build this structure of being royal and the royal family and all of this thing, and she has pulled off this incredible coup, which is that she has essentially married her daughter Marie Antoinette off to a rather ageing, well, I mean, he's dull, he's boring, uh, Louis XVI, um, and he's, you know, he's supposed to be, this is obviously a great catch, you know, she's now married into the royal family, but it is entirely clear that this 19-year-old ain't so keen on her husband. And obviously there's been many letters before this particular one that we're going to hear where she's clearly saying, look, just, just calm down, love, calm down, listen to your mother. And then finally uh, she, she writes a letter which is half in sorrow and half in anger. Um, and of course the thing is, again, the brilliance of these letters is, with hindsight, we know that she is right to talk about the misfortune that might fall upon her daughter. And she's giving her advice because she loves her. And she will, as she asks in the letter, not live to see the French Revolution. And she will not live to see her daughter beheaded. And I think that is for a slightly longer letter. Back to Tamsin. Madam, <laughs> my dear daughter, I cannot hide from you that a letter you sent to Minister Rosenberg upset me most dreadfully. What style? What frivolity? Where is the good and generous heart of the Archduchess Antoinette? I see only intrigue, vulgar spite, delight in mockery, and persecution. An intrigue which would do very well for a pompadour or a Dubarry. <laughs> but never for a queen, a great princess, still less a princess kindly and good of the house of Lorraine and Austria. All the winter long I have trembled at the thought of your too easy success and the flatterers surrounding you, while you have thrown yourself into a life of pleasure and preposterous display. This chasing from pleasure to pleasure without the king and knowing that he takes no joy in it and only goes with you or lets you do what you want out of sheer good nature has made me write before to express my fears. I see now, from this letter, that these were all too well justified. Your luck can all too easily change. And by your own fault, you may well find yourself plunged into deepest misery. That is the result of your terrible dissipation, which prevents your being assiduous about anything serious. What have you read? And after that, you dare to opine on the greatest state matters, on the choice of ministers. What does the abbe do? And mercy 
You dislike them because instead of behaving like low flatterers, they want you to be happy and do not take advantage of your weaknesses. One day you will recognize the truth of this. But then it will be too late. I hope I shall not survive until misfortune overtakes you. And I pray to God to end my days quickly. Since I am no longer of any use to you. And I could not bear to lose my dear child or see her unhappy, whom I shall love tenderly until I die. Don't make me talk. I'm not going to. I've learned my lesson. (laughs) Um, It's extraordinary, isn't it, that you learn so much about the person who's written the letter and to whom it's being sent. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, with those letters, there are are quite a few, obviously, parent-to-child letters in the book. But for me, one of the things about that letter is not just the hindsight that we know she's right, regardless of how the machinations have got her there, but we know what's coming. But I think it's also the cry of older, overlooked women everywhere, that she has been the empress, she has been that person in charge, and she is ageing and getting older, and she's kind of no longer got the stomach for this. She loves her daughter, and she wants her daughter to pull herself together, but she knows that her power is gone. And actually, that's why I find that letter so moving. It's the, it's, it's the cry of all parents, yeah. don't leave me, don't leave ruled, me. I mean, by that stage, she'd ruled for 35 years. That's right. So, and she'd been, you know, Empress of Austria, the greatest, uh, and a Habsburg, so, you know, the grandest family in Europe. And she'd managed to marry her daughter to the King of France, who was an extremely dull, bored, boring, (laughs) mediocre man who was really happiest, not with his beautiful young wife, but with his collection of clocks, um, which he loved to watch (laughs) endlessly, as as we all are. (laughs) And... um, and so she writes this letter in absolute despair, but also there's a great sort of... I mean, you can hear in that the House of Austria is the House of Habsburg. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and she's talking about the Dubarrys and the Pompadours, and those are the mistresses of the old King of France, the very, the very disreputable, the Kardashians of their day. <laughs> and she's, um, that she's denouncing there. Um, so. let's, let's move on to uh, a, a love letter. Seabag, let's uh, uh, hear you talk about Frida Kahlo writing to Diego Rivera. Well, Frida, Frida Kahlo, I mean, her letters are as colourful, exotic, brave and sensuous as her paintings. And in a way, they're, they're, they, they come from the same place. And they're one of the examples in the book of artists like Michelangelo, like Mozart, who write these, these letters that show that they were also incredibly articulate in words as well. Um, she had an incredibly tragic life. Uh, she was, she was, she, she, in some ways, she symbolized the, the, the racial variety of Mexico. She was, she was part American Indian. She was part Jewish and German. She was part Spanish. Uh, as a young girl, she, she wanted to be an artist, but she had suffered from polio. Then she endured this nightmarish accident in a bus, which those of you who've seen the movie with Salma Hayek will remember 
when a steel girder went right through her uterus. And she survived this, crippled, always in agony, always wearing um, braces and special supports and undergoing nightmarish treatments. And yet she survived us to become an incredible liberated woman who had affairs with Trotsky, with um, Josephine Baker, um, and married Diego Rivera, the great artist. And she, the two of them became the artistic um, personification of Mexico and still are. And this is, is just one of her letters, and Jade's going to read it for us. To Diego. Diego, nothing compares to your hands. Nothing like the green gold of your eyes. My body is filled with you for days and days. You are the mirror of the night, the violent flash of lightning, the dampness of the earth. The hollow of your armpits is my shelter. My fingers touch your blood. All my joy is to feel life spring from your flower fountain that mine keeps to fill all the paths of my nerves, which are yours. <laughs> I think the, the take-home from this evening is going to be flower fountain, I think, isn't it? <laughs> One. Okay, <laughs> um, let's talk about Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin. These are uh, wonderful letters. Well, well, um, this is this is this is the best way to end a quarrel. <laughs> and um, Catherine and Potemkin were really one of the probably the most successful political partnership in all of history. I mean, forget about Napoleon and Josephine or Eva Peron and, and Peron, um, Antony and Cleopatra. Um, Potemkin and Catherine were equals. They were an incredible, passionate love affair, um, but they also succeeded amazingly well politically. And they were very different. He was Russian, undisciplined. Um, oftentimes when she was talking to ambassadors, in, in, like the French ambassador in a formal imperial um, audience, the door would, one door at the end of the room would open and Potemkin would walk through the room just in a pair of Turkish pantaloons, <laughs> chewing on an apple and wearing a bandana like a rock star, and just walk through. He wouldn't say anything to her. He'd just walk out and walk out the other door, and the empress had to continue um, as if nothing had happened. Um, while she was very orderly, very Germanic, would wake up at six in the morning, cook her own coffee, and get to work. So, but the, two thing they, the one thing they had in common was talent. They were both incredibly brilliant intellectuals, brilliant politicians. Um, but their relationship was very, very um, uh, uh, confrontational. He wanted to be the prime minister, the czar almost. She was the czar. And they had to work it out. So in the end, they secretly married and they arranged an amazing sort of form of marriage whereby they would rule the country together, be married, and yet each have young lovers, which... You know, some might say it's a very civilised way to organise your life. And it's a big um, country, after And it's all. a big country. It's a big country. So, um, now, this, um, this letter um, really catches their, the one, one side of their relationship, um, the personal side. And, um, and we're going to start off with Prince Potemkin's letter to Catherine, which is going to be read um, by Kwame. Let me, my love, say this which will, I hope, end our argument. 
Don't be surprised that I'm disturbed by our love. Not only have you showered me with good deeds, you have placed me in your heart. I want to be there alone and above everyone else because no one has ever loved you so much. And I have been made by your hands that you should be happy in being good to me, that you should find rest from the great labors arising from your high station in thinking about my comfort. <sighs> Amen. So she receives, she receives this letter from Prince Potemkin. Now you have to imagine they're each at separate ends of the Winter Palace. And you know how long the Winter Palace is. So imagine this like an email, except actually each reply would be carried by servants running the length of the Winter Palace. So between each line, you've got to, imagine, you've got to hear the pitter-patter of a feet as a, as a servant runs the whole length of the Winter Palace and hands the letter to the, to the other one in this amazing couple. And now Tamsin is going to read um, the reply. So if you both... Read the letter in its full panoply. Let me, my love, say this. I allow it. <laughs> which will, I, I hope, end our argument. The sooner the better. Don't be surprised that I'm disturbed by our Don't love. Don't be disturbed. Not only have you showered me with good deeds, you have placed me in your heart. I want to be there alone and above everyone else. You are there firmly and strongly and will remain there. Because no one has ever loved you so much. I see it and believe it. And I have been made by your hands. Happy to do so. <laughs> that, that you should be happy in being good to me. It will be my greatest pleasure. That you should find rest from the great labors arising from your high station in thinking of my comfort. Of course. <laughs> Give rest to our thoughts and let our feelings act freely. They are most tender and will find the best way. End of quarrel. Amen. Amen. Just wonderful, thank you oh, so good. much. Um, we are going to press on. Um, Seabag, uh, introduce for us. Uh, these are letters between uh, Simon Bolivar, Manuela Saenz, and James oh, Thorne. This is, again, what happens when you write a letter to your lover telling them that it's over, and they write back and say, no, it isn't. <laughs> and um, this, this involves two of the great characters of history that are less well-known in England, and that's, that's why it's one of the fun things is putting yeah, yeah. these sort of characters in this, in this anthology I mean, Bolivar is uh, the genius of the storm, is how he described himself modestly. And um, he was the man who liberated three quarters of South America, I think eight countries, including Bolivia, which of course is named after him, but Venezuela, uh, Colombia. And he ended up as president of a country that included Colombia, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and Peru. Yeah. So quite a man. And this is before he, was, before he was about 40, he'd liberated these countries. Um, he was also a great lover, and he said his best ideas came to him when he was dancing at a ball um, with a beautiful girl. And when he met Manuela Science, he'd really met his match. She was much younger than him, um, and she was already married to an Englishman called James Thorne. 
but they fell passionately in love. But he had to live the life of a warlord, and he wasn't sure um, the relationship could last. And besides, she was married. So let us begin with Jack um, writing to Jade, um, who is Manuela, who's also going to join him um, on, on the stage. I want to answer, most beautiful Manuela, your demands of love, which are entirely reasonable. (laughs) But I have to be candid with you, who have given me so much of yourself, it's time you knew that long ago I loved a woman as only the young can love. Out of respect, I never talk about it. And I'm, I'm pondering these things and I want to give you time to do the same because your words lure me because I know that this may well be my moment to love you and for us to love one another. I need time <laughs> to, to get used to this. For, for a military life is neither easy to endure nor easy to leave behind. I, I have fooled death so many times now that death dogs my every step. I, I, allow me to be sure of myself, of you. I, I cannot lie. I never lie. My passion for you is wild and you know it. Give me time. (laughs) Well, Manuela, as you might have guessed, is not the sort of person who's going to take no for an answer. So she was an incredibly formidable character who liked to dress up. I liked to ride into battle dressed as a colonel um, and who was a complete free spirit. And... Um, but she was still married to her Englishman, Mr. Thorne. So what she does is, she's not going to be sent back to Mr. Thorne. She writes a letter to Mr. Thorne, which she copies to Simon Bolivar. <laughs> and, um, and this is the letter which um, Jade is going to read. No, 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 hombre. A thousand times, no. Sir, you are an excellent person. Indeed, one of a kind. That I will never deny. I only regret that you are not a better man, so that my leaving you would honour Bolivar more. I know very well that I can never be joined to him in what you call honour. Do you think I am any less honourable because he is my lover, not my husband? Ah, I do not live by social conventions men construct to torment us. So leave me be, my dear Englishman. We will marry again in heaven, but not on this earth. (laughs) On earth, you are a boring man. (laughs) Up there, in the celestial heights, everything will be so... English because a life of monotony was invented for you people who make love without pleasure conversation without grace who walk slowly greet solemnly 
move heavily, joke without laughing. But enough of my cheekiness. With all the sobriety, truth, and clarity of an Englishwoman, I say now, I will never return for you. You are a Protestant and I a pagan. That should be obstacle enough. But I am also in love with another man. And that is the greater, stronger reason. You see how precise my mind can be. Your invariable friend, Manuela. You are a boring man. I mean, that's such a put down, isn't it? She's fantastic how she just gives us women so much strength. (laughs) I love that. Um, I I wonder if we can just have a a real um, change of of mood and tone now. Um, Kate, if you would introduce uh, the letter that uh, Alan Turing wrote to Norman Routledge. Yes, um, I mean, I think for me, this was one of the most heartbreaking letters in the entire collection. And it was written in 1952 when homosexuality was still illegal in the UK. And at this moment, Turing was living in Manchester and he was having an affair with a young man. And the most extraordinary sequence of bad luck really happened in that this young man was burgled and the police came. And in the course of just being a normal citizen, being looked after by the police, it came out that they were lovers. And as a result, Turing was uh, arrested. And you just imagine how they had been hiding all of these things for so long. And then it was something so other that actually caught them, if you like. And he um, was, you know, tri- was, was arrested for gross indecency. And he avoided a prison sentence by agreeing to undergo a chemical treatment, which is a quite similar to chemical castration. And now, looking back in his biographer, say this was the beginning of the end for him, kind of finished him off. And as you all know, he uh, committed suicide a couple of years later. And so he didn't live to see homosexuality being decriminalised in the UK in 1967. And he also didn't, of course, live to see Turing's Law in 2007, which finally pardoned all of those people who were so wronged by the country that should have been grateful to them. So Jack is going to read this really wonderful letter, which just reminds us, actually in these difficult times, how some things are better than they were. My dear Norman, I've now got myself into the kind of trouble that I've always considered to be quite a possibility for me though I have usually rated it at about 10 to 1 against. I shall shortly be pleading guilty to a charge of sexual offences with a young man. The story of how it all came to be found out is a long and fascinating one, which I shall have to make into a short story one day, but haven't the time to tell you now. No doubt I shall emerge from it all a different man, but quite who I've not found out. I'm afraid that the following syllogism may be used by some in the future. Turing believes machines think. Turing lies with men. Therefore, machines do not think. 
yours in distress, Alan. Seabag, were there other letters that he had written and you chose this one in particular? This is the, this is the one that really um, displays the sort of sheer agony he was going through. Um, and, you know, when he talked about the machine, you know, he was really... This is the man who'd kind of really been... Those of you, there's been a movie on it recently, as you know, as you probably many of you have seen. But, you know, he'd been absolutely brilliant at the codifying, the codification... Um, uh, during the war, he'd been he'd worked on breaking the Enigma code at Bletchley Park, and he'd had the first concept of you know how a computer would work, and that's what the machine he's talking about there is, a, is artificial intelligence. Yeah, artificial yeah. intelligence. I mean, he'd invented all these. I mean, he, so this man is a towering genius, um, and he's been brought down by this incredible injustice and cruelty, and the punishment they devised. Um, I mean. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of another letter that's also in here, which is the Oscar Wilde letters, the letters that brought Oscar Wilde um, to his downfall. And, you know, it's just a heartbreaking thing that, that this very unjust law against homosexuality destroyed this man. And this sentence of, 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 of castration by, by chemical treatment mm. was just appalling, you know, beyond medieval torture, really. And it, just, it literally destroyed him as a man. So, a heartbreaking, a heartbreaking letter. And I think one of the things that is so um, moving about that for me, reading it, is that we, there are lots of letters in the book, and we've heard some of them this evening, where you are aware that history is being made. You know, Lenin is saying, hang them all, publish their names. So we know that this is history. But there's also, we know that the way that history works is often, you know, that old, the poem, For the Want of a Nail. And the fact that he would have been hiding all of his life, but he was found out because a burglary happened. Actually, nothing to do with him, really. And I think that that's the thing that is always worth remembering these letters, that it's the way, the different way that history is made. And it's just those terrible, terrible moments of bad luck when the light, that tiny moment of light, and there's a stumble, and that was actually the end of him. And it might the, not have happened. But, but also the fact that we know that if he'd been alive today, yeah. he would be the most kind of honoured man That's in our right. society. He would be a member of the Order of Merit. He would, be in the, you know, he would have been knighted. Um, and yet just, just the fact that he was born at that time, time. sentenced him to this great injustice. Yeah, but I think it's also worth, I mean, that is one of the things that, you know, we all sit here in the context of everything that goes on around us and what we think and the things we read and all the rest of it. But sometimes it is good to remember that this was awful and the law did change. And it's not that law here now. It is in other countries, but it's not here. And I think that's one of the things that I think is so great about the pattern in the book, that you can see that things do get better in some ways, even if they also get worse in others. And I think that's quite important that this book gives a bit of hope. We're we're almost approaching the end of the evening. Uh, We've got one more letter, but we're going to open up the floor to questions, um, if there are any. Um, Thank you. Um, So uh, my question is to Simon. Um, about um, the, uh, it, the sort of criteria that you had for uh, choosing each letter um, and whether you uh, also considered the fictional. Um, you opened with um, a quote from Goethe and uh, as far as I'm aware, the sorrows of young Werther um, did change the world. 
um, made him a literary star. Um, he, uh, the, the work was um, carried by Napoleon during his campaign, and it is the first recorded uh, instances of copycat suicides that were generated from that book. Um, and also uh, about, uh, if you could comment a bit more about Oscar Wilde and perhaps the greatest letter um, ever written, the 50,000-word De Profundis. Thank you. Yeah, a oh, good question. Um, I mean, De Profundis, I absolutely love De Profundis, um, but it was too long. There was so much of it. <laughs> There's so much of it, but there are actually bits quoted in here because there are a few bits of that that I love so much that I've put in, I've put in here. Because the great thing about this collection of letters is I could put what I liked in it, which is a great thing. And I love this. There's a moment in De Profundis when Oscar Wilde comes out and everyone is spitting at him and, and booing him, and he's been destroyed. He's fallen from the heights. And as he walks through the crowd, um, everyone is, is just sneering at him, and his face is covered in spit, and he sees his friend, Robbie Ross, standing in front of him. And Robbie Ross takes his hat off and bows to him. And Oscar Wilde says in, in De Profundis, the men have gone to heaven for lesser things. He's so grateful. So it's such a touching moment. Um, but, um, but there, are no fi- there are no fictional letters in here, obviously, is it? But, but, but there are many um, letters by artists, by creative people, by novelists. There's a letter from Balzac, there's a letter from Mozart. Um, my criteria was, was, was letters that changed the world in some way that only I can define. <laughs> and, um, I mean, for example, you know, Frida Kahlo is in there, because um, I love Frida Kahlo, but also because she really defined, for the first time, the, art, the woman as artist. And that is, that is, a, way that, that is a, a way that changed the way she changed the world. Anais Nin is in here, and in her letters with Henry Miller. They're wonderful love letters. But she defined how women can write about love and sensuality in a way that no one had before. So actually, even, even, even the letters that seem kind of barking that they're in here are in here for a reason. I'm sure you could produce several books and cho- choose completely different letters and it would be as enjoyable. Well, we had to throw out, you know, we had to throw out a lot of letters that we couldn't put in here because we, we had to, but I, I mean, I, mean I, I've, I found so many mm. and the criteria is just letters that I'd like to read, really, that I wanted to read myself. <laughs> so that's, that's what's that's in the book. That's why we all write, isn't it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Of course, it's yes. It's hard for me to see. There's a hand just there. Someone's the waving back. at the there. back. Right, okay, so Great. do you have a microphone? Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, well, we're talking about letters that change the world, but I think that if we don't write, the world is also going to change in another way. So um, I am for the preservation of handwriting, all of us collectively, and uh, sometimes I'm 38 and sometimes you blame into the new generation that they are not writing, but it is us who stop doing it to show them the way. So I wonder, and this is my question, how are you preserving handwriting and what do you recommend us well, to keep this going? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. And one of the themes of the book is like, let's write letters more. You know, this is like a celebration of letter writing. I mean, in histor- in historically, there were a 500-year period when people wrote. I mean, Catherine the Great described herself as a graphomaniac. She would write all night, every night, and um, to, to many different sorts of letters, many to, to many different people. And the telephone and then the internet and texting, of course, have destroyed it. One of the interesting things is that the, la- the, the latest, the fact that, like, emails and so on are so insecure now 
uh, has started to change that. And I think letter writing will come back just as the book has come back. Mm. You know, people said the book was going to be extinct, but actually we love Holden. It's actually coming back. Mm. Um, and books are selling more than they were um, a few years ago. And I, you know, talking to people, I talk to people in, the, in government, in, in the intelligence services, they all now much prefer writing letters yeah, with an old pen yeah. because um, you know, the security services of, all, of the CIA and, and so on are all harvesting our emails um, to read them, and they're not secure anymore. When I spoke to someone in the Kremlin, they said, I said, what does, what does President Putin use? And they said, well, he used, to use, um, he used to use BlackBerry, and then he used WhatsApp, and then he used Telegraph. Um, and when the, when the owners of Telegraph wouldn't give him the codes, he's gone back to writing on paper with a Mont Blanc pen. And, 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 and I said, well, I said, why? And he said, like, look, we're the Russians. You know, we're the people who really know about um, internet yeah. uh, insecurity. <laughs> and so if we're using Mont Blanc pens now, should so should all of you. <laughs> you. You've all read these letters so beautifully. Do any of you handwrite letters to anyone? No. Well, Baffled yeah. looks. Yeah, the, youngs, the youngsters go. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the nice elderly ones do. Yeah. It's nice to be on that. You know what? I, I, I haven't written a letter in ages, but I received a beautiful letter um, maybe a few months ago. The teacher that made uh, the difference to my life. You know, that, you, we all have that. That, 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 yeah. that one. Oh, and, um, and she came to see a show of mine. And, uh, and I was like a child in the lobby when I, when I met her. And then I didn't hear anything for like days afterwards. I was like really nervous. I was like, she hated it. And then she wrote me this four-page letter. Um, and um, and I, 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 I felt like I could, I could have wept. It was, uh, and it's, it's really special. It's going to stay with me all the days of my life. Nice, very nice. I do, I, I, sorry, I do, I do remember. Don't. No, I don't write letters. <laughs> I don't write letters. But I do remember the day at high school where I, it was, we had social education up in Scotland. I can't even remember what that is. But I remember being so bored in that class continually that one day I decided to change the slant of my handwriting to the other side. <laughs> And it's, it's literally been that way since that day. Because I was sat not listening and went, I wonder if I turn it this way. And did you write, you are a boring man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where is your flower fountain? You should have said that. Yeah, flower fountain. Flower fountain. That's wonderful. I got a letter, I'll say this very quickly, I got a letter and I don't know how it got to me. Um... Uh, sent from a woman who's, who was a nurse working in a, um, a, a camp on the t- Burmese-Thai border. I don't know how she got this letter, this handwritten letter, to say that she was there, she'd been there for a long time, she had her young son with her, and, the, and her son had night terrors. And the only thing that would calm him down was watching VHS tapes of a show I did on Channel 4 called Black Books. Yeah. I'm not going to take any credit for that because, uh, you know, it was a great show because of those two guys. But the fact that she wanted to tell me and, I, and wrote this long, beautiful letter and, and got it to me. And, uh, you know, that's a treasure. That's success. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you've got the microphone just there. Yes, I did. Um, 
I tempted to say that was my question, but um, actually want to take you to the very beginning of discussion when one of you ladies, I don't remember which one, I'm sorry, mentioned that the letters seem to be coming back to fashion. Apart from KGB and all that, do we have any evidence of that? <laughs> that one's for you. None whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. Um... I mean, one of the bizarre things about these letters is some of these letters were written to be, to be published. I mean, yeah. in, especially in the 18th century, people wrote letters in order to be copied. I mean, um, but then there's a whole lot of other letters in here which were written in such secrecy, it would have like, been unthinkable that these letters would. I mean, that, like the letter we heard from Marie Antoinette, yeah, yeah. You know, the Empress of Austria to the Queen of France, that is a letter between heads of state that was never meant to have been have been read or seen by anybody and yet we're seeing it and of course there are lots of erotic letters in the book that of course no one was meant to see and yet they were kept so letters are a secret thing as well as a public thing and that's one of the joys of letters let's have one more question hi were there any letters that were never sent and you think if they had been sent would have changed the world well yeah there's one there's one letter in the book that wasn't sent that is in the book and that's the letter that, on just in June 1944, just, as, just before D-Day, on the day of D-Day, General Dwight Eisenhower, who was the Supreme Commander-in-Chief of D-Day, wrote two letters. And the first letter um, was to say, we have successfully landed in Normandy, um, you know, and congratulations to all the forces of the American British armies. Um, we have begun the liberation of Europe. And the other letter he wrote was um, the letter that said, I'm afraid there's been a major debacle. We have failed to land on the beaches of Normandy. We've been, we've been totally defeated, and, um, and the disaster is totally um, my fault, and I take full responsibility for it. So he wrote both these letters by hand, and, um, and he put them on his desk, and he went out to order. He checked the weather, and then he ordered D-Day to begin. So he never sent the second letter. And, let, and key letters not being received. The, 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 the marriage you know, between Henry of Navarre and Margot Marguerite, and it was supposed to bring peace to France and you know, in the wars of religion in the 16th century. And the Pope had sent a letter. They'd had to ask special permission for these, the Catholic and the Protestants to be married. And there is a lot of evidence that Catherine de' Medici shut all the gates so that the Pope's letter could not be received. And the Pope's letter said they cannot marry. But by the time the letters, you know, it was clear that she had, it was another plot, as it were, they had been married. Um, and it, uh, those letters as well, the idea that they're out there, but they never got to where they were supposed mm. to get. I mean, that's just fascinating yeah. as well. Well, another, just, just, just a patch to finish on the sort of letter. Because <laughs> my name's Simon Seabag. There's a famous plastic surgeon in London called, is he called Joseph? What's he called? Um, Dr. Seabag. And I regularly receive letters <laughs> that, are meant, that are meant for him. Um, at my house, obviously, and because, and because the, the two names are next door to each other, they're always from people that I know really well. And I should just say, I haven't put any of those letters in the book, um, but you should read them. Um, perhaps that's a good place I to... I get asked, you know, to do modelling contracts, yeah, but I was hey. just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you all very much for your questions. We have one final letter that we are going to hear this evening, and it's a letter written by Leonard Cohen to Marianne Ithlen. And uh, Seabag, you're going to introduce that. Well, I mean, I think the greatest art in letter writing is to know how to say goodbye. And um, you all know who Leonard Cohen was. He was the great singer-songwriter, poet, who wrote great songs like Suzanne and Sisters of Mercy and, Mar- and So Long, Marianne. And Marianne in those um, songs was his love affair that he had on, on the um, island of Hydra in Greece in the 60s with a beautiful Norwegian girl called Marianne Eblen. And um, jump ahead many, many years. Um, he's in his 80s. It's 2016. She's, she's the same age. And she finds out that she has leukemia. And she's dying in a hospital in Oslo, and she calls in her best friend, who later wrote to me and told me the story in detail. Um, She called in her best friend, she said, I'm dying. Can you let Leonard know? And they hadn't been in contact um, for over 40 years at all, but they knew that that they were the greatest love of their lives. And so this guy, who was her best friend, went to his email Got her, found her, she gave him the, uh, Leonard's email. She sent him an e- he sent her an, him an email, and he said, like, you know, Marianne is here with me. Um, she's dying, and I hope this reaches you in time, because I'm not sure she's going to last the night. And they went to, and he, went, he had a sort of sleepless night in the hospital, and at dawn he checked his email, and this, this was the letter that he found from Leonard Cohen, which Kwame is going to read to close the proceedings tonight. Dearest Marianne, I'm just a little behind you, close enough to take your hand. This old body has given up as yours has too and the eviction notice is on its way any day now. I've never forgotten your love and your beauty, but you know that I don't have to say more. Safe travels, old friend. See you down the road. Endless love and gratitude. Leonard. Thank you so much. Uh, just leaves me to say thank you to Jade Anuka, Jack Loudon, Tamsin Gregg, Kwame Kwe Armour, Simon Sevag Montefiore, and Kate Moss. And of course, to Intelligence Squared for putting on a fabulous event. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you.